This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Over the summer, a new movement started to gain momentum. The movement to ban plastic drinking straws. It's now legal for food service businesses in Seattle to provide plastic straws and utensils. Santa Cruz is among 28 others around the country that have banned or limited plastic straws or are considering it. California and Hawaii are even exploring statewide policies. Environmentalists say 500 million plastic straws end up in the world's oceans every year, harming wildlife. The argument against straws is pretty simple. We consume tons of plastic. Not much of it gets recycled. Most of it ends up in landfills and oceans. So why not try to reduce a little of that waste? But like most issues these days, there's been a lot of disagreement about it. There's been backlash from a few directions, including conservatives. The left's war against, wait for it, straws. It's all a bunch of moral preening, right? It's this idea that we are holier than thou. But people with disabilities also spoke up because some of those folks actually need straws in order to drink. That it might take away their tool of independence. And there's even disagreement about the actual number of straws that we throw away each day. You hear the number 500 million floating around a lot. Apparently, that number came not from a rigorous study, but from a precocious nine-year-old science project. Not a nine-year-old science project, a nine-year-old's science <laughs> project. Really taken off, Even right? the environmentalists could not agree on whether the straw ban was a good thing or not. Yeah, everybody got to have their thing. The real problem is cars. The real problem is buildings. The real problem is, have you seen China's emissions? You know, the real problem is too much nitrogen and, you know, ocean acidification and, you know, just any environmental problem is probably more important than plastic straws. This is journalist Alexis Madrigal. He wrote a great essay about plastic straws for The Atlantic, and he's going to be our guide through all of this because he says that when you zoom out from the controversies of today and look at the actual history of plastic straws, they can tell us a lot about America. So tell me about some of those bigger themes that emerged when you looked at the history of plastic straws. Yeah, so, you know, I used to do this quite a bit, like just take some little object and just trace its history. You know, you can look up the patents on Google and you can search around for, you know, the companies that made it and you can see its technical evolution. You know, you can just look at it like the way you would look at the development of any technology. But the thing that was so crazy about the straw was that it just hit so many of these like real true major trends in the way that the country worked. You know, the straw is there for the invention of American industrialism, for urbanization, for public health reform, for like the suburbanization of the country, fast food, and now, of course, the culture wars. Like, it's there for all of that. Mm -hmm. And so tell me where it all began. Did someone invent the straw or was it just always there? So, you know, there's even like scientific studies that show that orangutans like will go like, hey, this straw like thing is cool for doing straw like stuff. You know, (laughs) So it's probably been around forever. There's ancient versions, et cetera. But in 19th century America, um, basically the straw was rye, literally, you know, grass that grows and it's kind of got this hollow tube. And, you know, you dry it, you cut it into shape. And that's what would happen. So that Mm -hmm. was the straw. Straw was straw. (laughs) Around this time, there were also straws made out of more durable materials, like metal and glass. But then... Then, you know, along comes this guy uh, in 1888 named Marvin Stone, and he creates what was then called the artificial straw. 
And the artificial straw is basically paper dipped in some kind of waxy substance like paraffin. And that becomes this new standard. And it wasn't just that it was artificial. It's also that it was disposable, this straw. That's right. This was basically this incredibly cheap and this incredibly basically disposable and hygienic thing. This wasn't something that came from nature. It was, in fact, produced to a standard. You know, this Mm -hmm. was a patent straw. And the fact that this straw was hygienic and produced to a standard was important because straws were becoming a tool in the emerging public health movement that was happening in cities around this time. So, you know, the reason public health is emerging at this time is because people in American cities are just like dying all the time of communicable diseases. And a lot of illnesses were spread through dirty drinking water. To understand why this was such a big health issue and why straws would eventually help to solve it, you have to understand how public water fountains worked at the time. In a lot of places in the city, both workplaces and in in public locations, the water fountain wasn't like uh, what we think of now, like this little thing with water bubbling out of it or like you press a little button, water comes out. It was just kind of like water that was uh, sitting there or a little tap and you would actually fill a cup that was attached to it and just drink out of it and it'd be like, you know, on some kind of chain or whatever. So, you know, a bunch of different people would all drink from the same cup. We actually did an episode about this. These early water fountains used something called the common cup and it became one of the main targets of the public health campaigners. There was actually like one Kansas doctor who started to like push this campaign against the common cup. And the tone of this campaign, it's intense. They they literally would show the Grim Reaper taking a drink from the common cup with like a little girl next to him. <laughs> um, and you'd just be like, Jesus, man, they're just, they're just drinking from the same cup, you know? <laughs> um, and in times when you want public health reform or some kind of reform, you just need to go for the throat. <laughs> like, right. this is going to kill your children, <laughs> you know? That's like, that's where they went with it. A lot of cities began requiring straw dispensers in certain public spaces. In the case of the common cup, straws were a way to avoid actually putting your mouth where somebody else's mouth had been. But it wasn't just public health reformers that contributed to the rise of straws. There's there's two things. There's a sort of public health mania on the one side. Um, and on the other side, there's the development of a certain bubbly carbonated beverage called soda. And... The soda fountain occupies this really important place in the kind of late 19th century, early 20th century city just as a space. For one, uh, most of the public places where you could go have a drink were saloons, and saloons were primarily gendered male. Uh, Urban women with increasing freedoms in the city wanted a place to go. And many urban women were also involved in various temperance movements. And again, saloons, they're serving booze there. And soda fountains become this kind of like clean, healthy alternative. So there are all these various trends, urbanization, the rise of the soda fountain, the temperance movement, the rise of public health. They all help lead to this booming straw industry, really. Yeah, and it's amazing because if you look at, um, there's a, the Battle Creek Inquirer, you know, small paper in May of 1924, they actually sort of list out how like, how far did this go? You know, how big was this boom? <laughs> and they say, due to the Yankee mania for sanitation, uh, the output of artificial straws has increased from 165 million in 1901 to 4 billion a year. <laughs> A manufacturer pointed out yesterday that laid end-to-end, these straws would build an ant's subway 16 times around the world at the equator. (laughs) And 
And so four billion straws, in context, you're talking about America has 114 million people at that point. Yeah, so 35 straws per capita. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of straws. That's I mean, straws. I, I, do I consider, I actually probably do. I'm actually almost sure. That <laughs> I'm probably like a hundred straw a year kind of guy. You know? By the 1950s and 60s, the straw would become less an actual driver of important cultural change and more this tiny kind of insignificant objects surfing along much bigger trends. Trends like the rise of fast food culture. Introducing the world's newest, silliest, and hamburger-eatingest clown, Ronald McDonald. Before a businessman named Ray Kroc took over a little restaurant in Southern California called McDonald's, he was a paper cup salesman. Which meant that he was also a straw salesman. <laughs> so he worked for the Lily Tulip Paper Company, for a long time, like you know, 15 years, going around the Midwest selling straws and cups to soda fountains. But what's amazing to hear, you know, and he, he wrote a memoir, which, I mean, he ran a burger shop and he called his memoir Grinding It Out, <laughs> <laughs> which I think kind of tells you a little bit about him. He also turns out he like moonlighted as a pianist <laughs> when he was a salesman, like just kind of one of those like really doesn't feel like a 21st century story. Like it feels <laughs> like a, like a, wow, that's a weird story. <laughs> but Ray Kroc in this memoir, Grinding It Out, he describes paper cups in this kind of disposable, you know, hygienic world. He was like, they were innovative and up beat. He said, I sensed from the outset that paper cups were part of the way America was headed. He was right. Like, that was part of the way America was going. Like, right. every we were going to throw away everything. We throw away f- phones. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, we throw away computers. We throw away couches, you know? So, Croc becomes a central figure, at least in my story, because he sort of connects this paper cup industry to this greater concept of, like, disposability in America. Selling all those cups brought Ray Kroc into contact with soda fountains, and he eventually went into business selling milkshake mixers. This led him to Southern California, where he saw the first McDonald's in operation. He bought his way into the small company and ousted the original owners. In the 60s, this is crazy, McDonald's goes from basically like 100 franchises to 1,000 mm-hmm. and then just like keeps on going, pure like kind of hockey stick growth. The American public are basically beef-eating people. And it wears well, day after day after day after day. People just want more of it. And I can't give them everything they like, but this one thing I sure can give And you have with basically the rise of fast food and suburbia, this massive increase in the amount of just kind of wrapping basically for food. You're getting your food in a box. Mm -hmm. And that just hadn't been the way that things were traditionally done. So the, the plastic industry at the same time is growing up because of this disposable trend. Can you talk about this transition from paper straws to plastic straws? Yes. One thing that's interesting about plastics, you know, 1950, the world is only producing like one and a half million tons of plastic, which of course is a lot because plastic doesn't weigh very much, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's nowhere close to sort of where, where we get. I mean, by the late 60s, that production has grown tenfold. So it's really kind of in the 50s into the 60s where basically people are going, is there an object? Maybe it should be plastic, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so, you know, chairs become plastic and plates become plastic and just everything kind of, if you can do it, you could do it in plastic. And so, of course, straws become part of this. By the 1970s and 80s, plastic straws had become ubiquitous. They were everywhere. 
And while straw design continued to evolve slightly, the more dramatic changes were happening in the straw industry. At this point, both in our economy and also in the sort of like the straw's history, it's really the mechanisms that organize the factories that become the most interesting sort of object. Mm-hmm. And those mechanisms are basically financial capitalism beginning to really move away from being about family businesses, organizing production, you know, at these kind of local levels or regional levels. And it really becomes everything is just a a money waiting to be made through financialization. By financialization, Alexis is talking about a big trend in economics that's been happening over the last few decades. Our manufacturing sector has been shrinking, while our financial sector has been expanding, which has big implications for who ends up making money on straws and a million other consumer goods. The slice of money that's going to the people who provide the money as opposed to provide the products is growing. Mm -hmm. And that has really important consequences for how things get made and who makes them and where the factories are located and how many people are employed and the culture of work and, and all these things. So tell me what happened to Maryland Cup. This is one of the country's biggest straw makers. Uh, what, what happened to them around this time? So Maryland Cup is this classic American story, right? It's owned by these brothers, the Shapiro brothers. They started out as like a bakery, and then they turn into this uh, kind of bakery services provider, and then they start making straws. So after they make straws, they make cups. After they make cups, they get sort of become one of the big partners for McDonald's. And it remained basically family-owned. But eventually, you know, the original management is gone, the people are aging, and they decide that they're going to sell the company. They sell the company to another company called Fort Howard. And they had one of these kind of hard-charging CEOs. And, the, you know, there's a great story in the Baltimore Sun where they describe going to the sales meeting. You know, the Maryland Cup executives, like, all show up, and the, the new bosses are there. And he literally apparently had a flip chart. And on the one page of the flip chart, it said, here are your old values. And they were service, quality, responding to customers. And then apparently he literally, like, flipped the flip chart to the next page, and it said, new values. Profits, profits, profits. (laughs) I was like, damn, that's quite a PowerPoint, you know? (laughs) Maryland Cup had been uh, a very profitable company with a highly family-oriented kind of culture, you know? The bosses would dress up as Santa Claus, you know, turkeys to all everybody at Thanksgiving, you know, that kind of, like, paternalistic we are all one big family company thing. Mm-hmm. Once they go into Fort Howard, it becomes a, a true just kind of like, we're, we're going to have to make money. So all these people get laid off. They cut pensions. They do all this stuff that's basically like the plot of Tommy Boy, kind of. If you remember this movie with Chris Farley <laughs> about Sandusky, Ohio? Ladies and gentlemen, we're in real trouble. Zelensky Industries has an offer on the table to buy us out. But as you realize, Callahan has been family-owned since Tommy's great-grandfather laid the first brick. And I'll be damned if that's going to change on my watch. Frank, if we sell while our value's still high, everyone wants to... You know, but it's, it's played out many, 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 many times. And in the end, what ends up happening is that Fort Howard itself then is bought by a private equity firm who then goes and combines a bunch of the different paper cup and disposable goods companies into one kind of larger entity and then spins it out 
loaded with a bunch of debt. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a classic move that happens in private equity because you can borrow against these companies, pay your investors, and then spin out this other company that then is like sort of floating in the ocean, like with rocks tied around its feet, right? <laughs> so operationally, like from the, from making cups and straws and all this stuff, they're still making money, but because they have to pay all this debt, they're like deeply in the red. Mm-hmm. So then they have to lay off people, then they have to close factories. And it is just the classic story of kind of like vulture capitalism. And the the fact that the straw, like the stupid straw, this like empty vessel somehow also is tied up in the financialization of America (laughs) just says one thing to me, which is that every single goddamn thing is tied up with this kind of system of production. Can banning straws really make a dent in our ecological problems? No. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's just not, it's not up to the scale of the, of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the through line I see with all this stuff, because obviously it's hard to connect, you know, a 1888 patent to the, you know, first artificial straw to, uh, you know, financial capitalism in its current form. Here's the through line as I see it. The country has shed manufacturing jobs for decades. Straws contribute their little tiny share to environmental disasters that are far beyond it. I mean, the economy continues to work in this way that concentrates wealth, uh, you know, for the very richest people. You know, the sodas that are even, like, passing through uh, the straws into people's stomachs are contributing to this obesity epidemic that threatens to actually roll back the public health reforms that actually got people's life expectancies to grow in previous eras. And there's this just this vast system now that's attached to the straw that helped really to create, you know, disposable products and then disposable companies and finally kind of disposable people, both the workers who work within this system, but also people who just have to live with all of these crises that have been created by structures far beyond their control. And so it was almost like, though we can all see that going on around us, it's kind of only when you focus down on like the most tiny thing that you can see that massive structure, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, in this kind of very pure way. Arguably the most significant technological achievement of the 20th century, at least according to one of the descendants of the inventor. It's the story of the bendy straw after this. We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, romanmars.com, I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. 
On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com invisible for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code INVISIBLE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. As Alexis mentioned earlier, the Maryland Cup Corporation got bought out and then its buyers got bought out and so on up the capitalist fast food chain. But before Maryland Cup sold their family business, they grew in part by acquiring a revolutionary key patent from another company. Kurt Colsted is here to talk about that other family-owned business that they bought out, the Flexible Straw Corporation. So first, a bit of context. As Alexis pointed out, we'll never really know when humans first started using straws. <laughs> But there's this Sumerian tomb that dates back about 5,000 years, and on its seal, there are these figures who appear to be drinking from straws. Hmm. Sure enough, when people opened up the tomb, they found this ornate drinking tube inside. It's made of gold and decked out with these precious stones. It's really fancy, and it's really old. And it's probably not the oldest straw that ever existed. It's just the oldest one we've found. Right. It may not even be close. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but setting its expensive materials aside, it's still just a straight tube. Right. A bit more durable, a bit more precious, sure. But otherwise, not that different from a modern grass or paper or plastic straw. So in a lot of ways, straw design hasn't fundamentally changed for thousands of years. Or at least it didn't until the 1930s. And that's when the flexible straw came into existence. Yes. And as the story goes, the inventor, Joseph B. Friedman, took his daughter to get a milkshake in San Francisco at a sweet shop owned by his brother. But as he's watching his daughter struggle with this normal straight straw, he thinks to himself, hey, you know, maybe there's a better way to do this. Right. And that's like the classic, you see a problem, you fix a problem. But this guy wasn't a straw maker by trade. How did he create this new object? So he starts out with this simple existing paper straw. <laughs> and then he slots in a metal screw into the neck. And then he wraps dental floss around the screw so that when he tightens it down, it creates ridges. Right. And these ridges allow the thing to bend, you know, like an accordion. So you just use the screw's threading to provide the groove, and then you yeah. tighten it and take it back out take again. Take it back and, out again, and, and, and then, you have a then, you, then you got a flexi straw. Right. So, like, really, anybody could have done this, right? <laughs> and, and he's really clear about this, too, in the patent application. He's like, look, I didn't invent the accordion. I didn't invent the straw. All I did was I combined this idea of flexibility with this, you know, straight tube for drinking out of. So he MacGyvers this thing into existence. Does it revolutionize the industry right away? What does it do? It actually took a while for these flexible straws to catch on, which is kind of shocking. Well, because his brother owned a soda shop. Like when he, <laughs> right, like, like he's got a path to market. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet somehow it takes him like 10 years to start selling these things. Oh, that's a long time to live on hope. Like yeah, that. it really is. And he ended up taking other jobs on the side. He, he did some work as a real estate agent, sort of keep it alive. And he also got cash infusions from his brothers who invested in the business, got some business help from his sister. Mr. Betty, who by many accounts was sort of the brains of the operation. Mm -hmm. And then finally, 10 years later, they get their first buyers and it has nothing to do with kids or soda shops. So who are the first people to buy Flexi Strassen? And it ends up being these large hospitals, which if you think about it, makes perfect sense. They've got injured patients, disabled patients, people lying in beds who have trouble sitting up. Right. And so these flex straws, which are, you know, bendable, disposable, sanitary, they're just perfect for these hospital environments. Mm-hmm. And from there, of course, they go on to restaurants and kids' juice boxes and all that. But they start out in hospitals. It's a really 
interesting example of universal design where it's really taken by a community that needs it and then everyone realizes, hey, these are kind of nice for us too. You know, as we mentioned before, there's some movement to have all plastic straws banned. Um, Do they still have a place in society? I mean, that's really debatable and it's still being debated. Um, And some people are saying, hey, look, let's go back to these paper bendy straws. That worked, right? That's what Friedman was inventing with in the first place. But then a lot of disability rights activists are saying, hey, you know, that's great for some people, but they can also fall apart. They're not that durable. And there's also an argument that, okay, well, then we should use reusable ones, right, that are Mm -hmm. sort of more eco-friendly, like glass or metal. But those are hard to keep clean. They can break. So there are issues with all these different types. And for a certain demographic of people who really needs them, Mm -hmm. there's a strong argument for keeping around plastic bendy straws. You can see pictures and patents of Friedman's original flex straw and old vintage print ads for them, too. They're delightful. That's on our website. It's at 99pi.org. Invisible was produced this week by senior editor Delaney Hall, based on the story Disposable America by Alexis Madrigal, written for The Atlantic. Mix and tech production by Sharif Youssef, music by Sean Rial. Katie Mingle is our senior producer. Kurt Kolstad is the digital director. The rest of the team is Vivian Lee, Avery Truffleman, Joe Rosenberg, Emmett Fitzgerald, Taryn Mazza, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is a member of Radiotopia from PRX, a fiercely independent collective of the most innovative shows in all of podcasting. Find them all at radiotopia.fm. You can find the show and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, and Reddit too. But you can listen to and read a ton more stories that use everyday objects to tell the story of the whole world at 99pi.org. Radio Tokyo.